0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ian Beattie, the co-founder of Second Quarter Ventures. Now I have to admit, when I first heard of this fund that was buying secondary positions into fast-growing technology companies in Australia and New Zealand that were often venture capital funded. I thought to myself, well, really, is this the time to be buying venture capital-backed technology companies, which seem to have all come down in valuation a lot? And also, is it right? And the best strategy to be buying the shares of founders who are getting out of the business. Don't you want those people to be really incentivized and in that business? Now, I have to admit that Ian did a good job of turning me around on both of those subjects. I think you'll find that Ian is super intelligent and knows his stuff in this area, and I think he makes a very compelling case for this investment. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can get me on david.clark at codacapital.com, and please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific advice. Listeners are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, and to receive advice before considering any investments. Enjoy the episode. Ian Beattie, welcome to Inside the Road. David, thanks very much for having me. And now we're going to talk about an investment opportunity which is quite long-dated. And whenever I think about long-dated investments and people making commitments, particularly where they don't fully understand or exactly know or can see what's going to be in the portfolio, I think it's really important to understand the person managing That money. So, who is Ian Beatty? Okay. Well, I think starting off, um, I'm I'm Ian,
1: as 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 you said. um, I'm the managing partner of Second Quarter Ventures. But uh, I think it's probably important uh, in any in any fund like ours. It's not just me managing money. It's uh, a team of general partners and also uh, the 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 team, the investment team underneath us. Um, So, uh, I think. in their absence, I'll start by talking a little bit about myself. Um, I, I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I had a you know, normal Melbourne existence, uh, but I, I part grew up on a sheep farm as well. It's where we went uh, on, on the weekends and spent my childhood uh, uh, mustering sheep and, and forming a, a keen interest in, in financial markets. Um, and that sort of manifested itself into something tangible not long after I finished secondary school, as it happens, um, I was a teenager and I found myself working for a company, a very small company, um, which was listed on NASDAQ and it was called internet.com. Um, this was uh, quite some time ago, it was before the, uh, the dot-com crash of, 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 to, of uh, 2000 and um, I think that's, uh, th- that's uh, something relevant that perhaps we can talk to a bit later. But um, this company was called internet.com, and I get asked all the time, was it really called internet.com? And i sure it was. Um, we, we were back then uh, a, a business very similar to what TechCrunch is today. Uh, we were uh, analysis and insights, um, uh, some kind of uh, financial interrogation of internet businesses back around that time. Um, and What's quite interesting about that is not so much what we did. You know, we were a bunch of kids. We were all teenagers um, just after, just, just out of school pretty much. And uh, that's not the interesting bit though. The, the interesting bit is um, who else was doing it? And um, there's a couple of the guys uh, who were around at that time working with, with me um, that have gone on to do some very interesting things. And it's amazing how those very positive shadows you cast when you're young can come back when you're older and and influence uh your life um so uh one of the one of the the guys uh, back then was nikki skivak now he's now the founder of blackbird ventures and then the other guy i was working with was mike cannon brooks who is uh most people know the founder of atlassian um and what's what's fantastic about uh about that is you know we were all pretty young we were kids we we in many ways really didn't know what we were doing but we were we were having a crack um, and broadly speaking over a you know over a period of a, a year or so um, the the Nasdaq company internet.com got acquired by a company called Jupiter media out of New York mm-hmm. and that was a bit of inflection point for us um, uh, Nikki uh, went across to uh, to work for Jupiter in New York and and eventually found his way back to Australia and, and um, uh, is now a uh, leading light in the venture capital industry in this country. Um, uh, Mike uh, wasn't too keen to get a corporate job and, and he had this idea so he, he went uh, away with Scott and started building Atlassian and I got accepted to university in England and I moved to England and you know, almost never came back up until uh, uh, several years ago. Um, so it was an inflection point for us, and uh, and particularly personally for me, um, and that made me really uh, start to think about technology uh, and investing from a very, very early age, even uh,
0: around university. So where was the sheep farm? Uh,
1: it was in uh,
0: central Victoria, actually, just outside of Mansfield. Okay. And, and you said then that, you know, I, I was you know, herding sheep and working on the farm and just developed an interest in financial markets. It's not kind of, if you had to set up surfing on the coast and developed an interest in making wetsuits or something else, I'm with you. T- tell me through how uh, a boy in that sort of background environment becomes interested in markets. I think I have to thank my dad for that. Um, he He's always
1: been uh, very keen in the financial markets and, and had built a, uh, a very uh, successful uh, boutique uh, investment advisory and, and investment banking practice out of, out of Melbourne um, and you know he grew up on a on a sheep station in central Queensland but somehow found his way uh, into investing and finance and uh, I think
0: that rubbed off on me so you go to Oxford University
1: uh, yes that's right and and where to from there um, well I, I did the well-trodden trek down to London from Oxford and and uh, found myself um, uh, working uh, or co-managing a pool of a pool of capital, um, uh, which was uh, reasonably large, certainly in the hundreds of millions of euros, um, the capital was uh, domiciled in Monaco but run out of London. And we were a, a diversified strategy. So, it, much like your clients, um, I presume you you advise them to uh, to maintain a diverse strategy to protect uh, various segments of of their capital. We were doing something very similar. Um, The one difference, I think, one of the major differences was we we didn't do too much in Australia, if anything, at all. Um, We were Northern Hemisphere, particularly European-focused. And we were, uh, whilst we were diverse, um, I was that guy who was always arguing for increased allocation to venture and technology because that is what I knew and it's what I believed in. Um, I think uh, one of your previous guests, Tom Weber, um, from LGT, he he had he mentioned that that those guys uh, out of Liechtenstein uh, maintain a rough twenty percent weighting in their in their venture. That was kind of what I was trying to argue uh, way back, you know, uh, post uh, post dot com crash. And obviously that was a bit hard, uh, such a high high weighting in that in that time. Um, but uh, we we managed probably somewhere between ten to fifteen percent. So. That was something I did for over quite quite a number of years,
0: um, based out of London. And then, what led you back home, or back to Sydney, or well, to Sydney?
1: Well, um, well you you sort of uh, wake up. Uh, in London, I'd spent a bit of time in the Northern Hemisphere. I was based in New York for 18 months. I was in Boston uh, for about nine months. I had uh, lived in Romania for 18 months investing. I was based in Buenos Aires for 18 months and even in Monaco for a year with that common denominator being London. But um, you know, many of those places are all quite hectic, um, very busy. Uh, you, you work really hard um, and, and, and you learn a lot. And, you know, I was around about 40 and I thought, look, I'd love to move to a place where there's strong, uh, there's a strong financial market, but also which is just a little bit smaller uh, and it, a, and a place that, that, that felt like home. And um, whilst London uh, has always felt like home ever since I've been there, it's not the place where I was born. And uh, I came back to Sydney uh, because uh, I thought it was a good idea. And tell us about second quarter. Well, second quarter second quarter came about over quite a long period, just with, with, with my journey anyway. Um, uh, but there were four general partners, and each of us has our own journey that, that took us to the formation of second quarter. I'll just talk about mine. Um, second quarter is a venture secondaries fund. Um, what, what that means is we're a liquidity fund. We buy shares from existing investors in great technology companies being... Uh, built out of Australia and New Zealand. Um, from venture capital funds? Uh, no, not always. So we'll we buy shares from any shareholder. So it could be um, an early angel investor. It could be the, the founder's uncle who gave him $50,000 to start the business way back, mm-hmm. way back when. Um, it could be a venture capital investor. We've done plenty of those transactions uh, who are VCs often want to take a little bit off the table of the ones that, that, that perform well. Um, but we also buy from founders themselves and this is a a fundamental, um, uh, tenant of our, of our fund, uh, providing great journeys for these people building great technology companies. So historically, um, investors frowned upon a founder taking a little bit off the table, frowned upon, uh, maybe employees being able to take a little bit off the table, but that attitude has changed. So we believe quite strongly and most uh, most VCs uh, think likewise that liquidity along the way for founders and, and employees really makes their journey better, and that generates a better outcome for for shareholders. You have um, people with more financial security uh, they 've got that they 've got a house they know that they can survive they know they can pay the school fees, uh, and that generates uh, a mindset which is kind of those swing for the fences, for want of a better term, and allows them to take those calculated hard risks they need to to grow their business properly.
0: So let's talk through just for the listeners who may not be so afraid with the sort of venture capital or typical capital funding route for uh, someone who's got a bright idea and goes to market, gets a bit of traction in a technology space. What does that look like in Australia at the moment? Because it's probably changed in Australia quite a lot over the last 5, 10, 15 years as well.
1: Yeah, it really has. Um, so, really, uh, venture capital in Australia got started... Uh, uh, the original VCs were the Melbourne family offices. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, those guys funded all these fantastic uh, tech companies that, that come out of uh, Australia sort of from 2000 to 2012, pretty much. Um, Seek is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. and
0: uh, We've yeah. had Paul on the, uh, on the podcast, one of our episodes.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, Paul... Um, we, we know Paul very well and in fact uh, I was uh, involved uh, with with the family business when I was a teenager again putting together the seed round and the series A for seek so I've known Paul and andrew for for a long time and um Paul like like uh like Nikki from from blackbird and and uh, Daniel Petrie from, from airtree those were the guys who really came together to to build the foundations of what is now the venture capital industry in Australia and I was able to to sort of look at how this was going from from afar. You know I was able to look at look at the Australian VC growth uh, from london and and notice that right at the start, sort of two thousand and twelve to two thousand and fourteen, there were a bunch of funds that were maybe around about thirty million dollars uh, who were investing in in great technology companies coming out of uh, of Australia particularly. Um, but it was hard back then for the VC industry to get. The, the scale it needs to power the quality of companies that, um, that Australia now produces. But things changed in 2015. So that was when um, these venture capital managers uh, attracted investment from superannuation funds. And it's one of the great things about the Australian superannua- superannuation industry uh, th- that we have so much capital in that space and being able it just shows being able to deploy a portion of that capital to... An industry that is going to uh, develop rapidly and help uh, protect Australia's economic future is really powerful. So these super funds came in, and all of a sudden these these venture funds that went almost overnight from sort of small, almost like a cottage industry, a nascent industry, to venture funds that were going from sort of thirty million dollars per fund to $130 million per fund. So it's a huge jump. And what I've seen ever since is subsequent funds have uh, leveraged the traction of their of their previous funds and continued to attract money from superannuation funds.
0: So, so basically, they've performed really well in the early funds. They've been able to go to the Australian supers of the world or similar and say, look, we've, we've delivered these great returns. You having a small portion of your billion dollars and more that you manage, hundreds of billions of dollars that you manage would make sense for your investors. And that they're carving off part of their their default managed scheme there to, to the square pegs and the air trees and the blackbirds, which is leading to a huge amount of capital in that area. That's right. So the capital has
1: expanded really quickly in a very short space of time <coughs> in Australia. And I think it's a truism for any market. it doesn't matter. we could be talking about West London property, we could be talking about Sydney property, but whenever capital expands in any market very quickly, there has to be liquidity that follows it's 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 a fact and uh, when when I moved to Sydney uh, I had seen this this expansion, but I hadn't seen the liquidity that had followed. Um, I was very familiar with uh specific venture secondaries funds in the UK, Europe, and the US. And I'd seen what uh, what good they could do for the technology ecosystem. And I got together with uh, the general partners, uh, three other general partners at second quarter, uh, Lee Jasper, the co-founder of Aconex, uh David Tarasio, one of the principals of Salter Capital, and Andrew Sipkus, who is uh, who has been described uh, by the media recently as a prolific technology investor. We all got together uh, felt very similarly that firstly the Australian market needed liquidity. They needed a pool of capital that was sophisticated and able to help these shareholders in private companies, technology companies that were growing very fast take a bit off the table along the way. Um, what happens when you when you do that is the, these investors, tend to recycle that capital back into the ecosystem. So, you know, we feel that uh, at, at scale, we can be a marginal improvement of, on, on, on increasing the velocity of capital through technologies, uh, companies in Australia, which means Australia has a, a, a better uh, chance of continuing to punch above its weight in the production of great tech companies. Um, on the other side, we, well, I knew from uh, my experience in the Northern Hemisphere that a venture secondaries fund not only can be very helpful, but can actually generate good returns. So we decided to set up second quarter initially with our own money. And we put together a pot of our own money uh, and it didn't take us very long to realize that uh, trying to solve the liquidity problem of an entire ecosystem with our own uh, capital was borderline delusional. The, the market was so much bigger than, than that. And we sat down and said, look, what, what are we doing here? Are we, are we solving a problem? Are we solving a liquidity problem? Or are we managing our money? Uh, and we all agreed unanimously, without hesitation, that we wanted to solve the problem. Um, the only way to solve that problem was to take on other money. And the logical way to do that was via a fund structure. So we became fund managers. Um, I think it's kind of important uh, because I, I remember allocating capital sitting sitting in London. I'd, I'd have all these managers come come across our desk, and they'd come into the office and with their latest hedge fund. And you you ask them why why you tell me why you're doing this? Why are you setting up this hedge fund? And most of them couldn't answer it. Uh, I would often tell them, look, I don't mean to be rude, but it just sounds like you you woke up on the Morgan Stanley trading floor a few weeks ago and thought it would be cool to start a fund. And, you know, the guys that were sort of unable to answer that question, they got shown the door very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, The people that, uh, or the managers that really understood why they were doing what they were doing, they were the guys that we we often backed. Um, So we're very clear about why we're doing what we're doing. There's a a very clear um, reason behind it. And there's also a very clear uh, mandate to differentiate us from, from the rest of venture capital within the Australian market.
0: So I think the question that hits me is there too much money chasing too few opportunities now. Is the quality there of Australian companies and how, how do you measure that or see that? Or is that something we have got to wait and see? I think it's... It's
1: definitely a wait and see. Uh, and I think wait and see is, is very much a, um, a characterization of the current market in, in this precise moment. Um, I know that one of the reasons that London is such a fantastic tech ecosystem and Silicon Valley is, even New York is, uh, is because of the amount of capital. It takes a lot of capital to pump through an ecosystem to fund the companies that fail, but also to fund the companies that succeed and shoot the lights out. Um, one thing we have not had in Australia for a long time, really, is enough capital, enough risk capital in this uh, venture capital market. And, you know, I would argue that uh, we're, we're getting there. Um, so there are there are funds this year that have raised a lot of money. Sort of. We, we read in the media, billion-dollar funds. Um, it remains to be seen whether there is that quality, but... Um, but I, I do know that Australians always punch above their weight in most things that they do. Uh,
0: technology, I don't think, is any exception. And tell us about the nuts and bolts of the fund. How long will investors coming in now, how long are they locked up for, what type of companies, what are the mandates, what are the sizes, what are the positions? I'll start with... Um, let me start with the companies, because that's Please. really where the where the value is, and that's the really
1: yep. exciting bit. Um, so we... we our job is to generate exposures to wonderful Australian tech companies that are growing very quickly and we do that for our investors the co- type of companies we invest in they're not the early stage they're mm-hmm. a little bit later um, normally their revenues they've got revenues so they gr- and the revenues have to be growing quickly so we can't do deep tech so nothing that's yet to be commercialized these are a real growing businesses mm-hmm. um, we we have to see that there's an Australian connection, obviously. Um, we also have to see that there is an existing venture capital investor on the shareholder register. And that's very important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I like the signals that that sends. Often, the, the Australian investors uh, in the venture capital world will, will be there, and that makes me feel a lot more comfortable that uh, that there's almost like a pre-vetting of, of our target universe. Um, the other reason that's important is because we're a secondaries investor, so we don't invest typically in uh, new issuances. So when the company typically in, in venture capital, the company is raising money, the money goes to the company. Um, we don't do that typically. So I love someone there that does do that because it helps. Uh, it so, helps.
0: So the typical journey might be described as founder has great idea, gets a little bit of traction, borrows gets some investors in friends, family and fools. Then after that might get an early stage angel investor or a very seed fund sort of focused venture capital type firm. Then they might go do a sort of Series A or First commercial venture capital type fund with a square peg or similar that's right and depending that you know staying private for longer now into much much bigger companies and valuations you know canva being the one everyone wants to talk about in Australia yep. um, companies reaching a billion dollar valuations without having a liquidity event where they're going to the market that's right so tell me you said you're looking for them growing quickly in this technology space how quickly Are we' talking 20 30 40 percent uh, so, so uh, the if I look at uh, our portfolio for
1: for yes. last calendar year, um, the slowest growing company in our portfolio was around about forty four percent, and that's and revenue growth. Revenue growth, yes. yes uh, and the fastest growing company was around about two hundred and fifty percent. Wow! So, so th- these companies are are growing relatively quickly, um, but off low bases. Uh, so off low basis, yes. So, n- you know, normally uh, the the a company that in our portfolio that grew 250% their revenues in the tens of millions already. Yes. Um, so that's a low base compared to many ASX sure. companies. Sure, but, but it's still but yes. not going from $1 to $10. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, normally our companies are, have uh, approaching $10 million in revenues before they became interesting. Uh, but as a as a general heuristic we, we look at um, a rough valuation threshold of $75 million Aussie dollars. So once a company hits that $75 million valuation uh, that they can evidence, uh, and it sounds sensible, it's, it's not, not a crazy valuation, mm-hmm. it starts to hit our radar.
0: What is a red flag for a crazy valuation?
1: Uh, lack of product market
0: fit uh, and lack of revenues to, to justify that valuation. Yep, in an idea. Yep. Okay. Um, I think there's a couple of things that sort of most listeners would be going, okay, radio, I get this. But tell me how does I think it's probably a little counterintuitive to most people. In in many of these cases you've got the founder, the person, the entrepreneur. If you're if they're decreasing their exposure, for instance, if you're taking allowing them to pay off the house and send the kids to mm. school and do some other things or take a little bit of comfort, talk us through, you know how that is a positive thing where obviously traditionally people have said well I want that person to have as much uh, incentive and or hurt in the deal you know as possible H- how does allowing them to take some liquidity off the table help it's, it it
1: comes down to I think you're right to use that word incentive. Um, so imagine uh, a port. Imagine there's a portfolio company of ours which is worth, let's say, hundred hundred million dollars. Um, the founder, if it's a single founder, uh, that founder will would at least have probably thirty percent of that company. So they've got this paper wealth of thirty million dollars just sitting there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's at risk. Uh, can't monetize it. Founder probably doesn't get paid a great salary. Um, the founder has family and and, and kids. Um you know letting that founder take a million dollars off the table leaves the founder with twenty nine million dollars at risk instead of thirty um, so I, I think it's quite quite reasonable to say, well twenty nine million dollars is very, very motivating, but if you can if you can uh, have that journey growing that position as a founder with the security uh that firstly, your position is not monopoly money, it is real, Mm -hmm. um, that your role to uh, provide or augment your familial wealth um, is uh, satisfied by what you're currently doing, building this company, then it's actually really powerful. And um, I have some personal experience of that, but uh, our chairman, Lee Jasper, the founder of Aconex, always talks about that. Uh, Along the Aconex journey, he, he was able to take a little bit of money off the table along the way on their private market journey. Then they listed and then uh, he was eventually able to sell his business to Oracle for uh, around about $1.6 billion, I think. Yep. Um, but he, he often talks to people about the, the ability to take a little bit off the table but still keep the vast majority of, of your position um, allowed him to swing for the fences, allowed him to have the, the courage, the fortitude to make the hard decisions he needed to make alongside his co-founder to, to drive Aconex into 60 global markets and event, eventual acquisition.
0: Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense what initially starts off as counterintuitive when you start to dig into it and you say, well, okay, I've got this founder here who's still got a reasonably large debt on their house. Uh, they've still got school fees. They've got a lot of these things. If I can take them and all of a sudden they've got a reasonably good lifestyle, not lavish, but reasonably good and comfortable and they're not stressed. So they're, they're not sitting there saying, how do I as quickly and easily monetize my position with the least amount of risk to make myself comfortable? They can actually say, okay, I'm comfortable now. How do I then take this to the next level? They start viewing risk and reward in a slightly different way, I think, which is really important. Um, that That's super helpful. The other one I think that, people listening to this right now in the current markets in Australia would go, well, technology evaluations around the world in 2022 have just rolled off in a massive way. You know, I, I know I was looking at one the other day, which we think is a good company and it's been doing very well for the last 10 years, a big brand name in the US and it's from top to bottom off 75%. How will people and how do you think about deploying the money now if you're going into a private market where, you know, I note that you know, Canva's the one everyone's gonna think about and talk about, where it was raising money at, I don't know, was it 50, 60 billion dollars, sort of at the end of last year type of thing? That's right. And then you had uh, Franklin Templeton, I think, say, look, we're gonna mark that down in our book, 30 odd percent, and then all the local VCs in Australia who, you know, have raised money and been to the institution saying, look, all these great valuations we've had and all of these uplifts we've had in these valuations, they're sort of saying, well, hang on, we may not value this down by 30% just because one investor's done that mm-hmm. um, because nothing in the business has changed. But what has changed is the public market valuations and, and what, you know, some things might have been valued at 60 times revenue are now being valued at 30 times revenue. Now, how do you think about that? Because I'd imagine clients of mine, for instance, and listeners would think about, well, gee, I don't really want to be investing in things which are just going to be revalued down for the next year or two or three? Yeah, that's uh, it's a very topical question. Uh,
1: I, I get asked various derivatives of that question quite frequently. Um, I think uh, where I'd start with is in, in venture capital, typically these companies are growing really, really fast. So if... Um, if you, you paid a certain price for a company, uh, let's say you paid a, a 60x mul- revenue multiple for a company last year and that company is growing 100% year on year, well, then your multiple now with that revenue growth is now 30x. Um, so, yes, whilst the markets are dropped, um, we can see that, that, is, that the, the compression in multiples uh, can be offset by the growth in the interim. So companies that raised at the start of last year grow very fast, their multiple is is lower anyway, even if it's flat, and that's what we're seeing. We're actually seeing uh, the early signs of flat rounds. So companies in the private markets, uh, we're not seeing a, yet a huge amount of valuation uh, uh, sl- being slashed. We we're seeing a uh, rounds being done at more or less flat prices, and the, w- what allows that to happen is the rapid growth that these companies experience during during. Uh, the past year or so. Um, th- there's a lot of uh, talk in the news about that Franklin Templeton write down um, and uh, you know I think the, the VC community has come together and said, look, we, we think that one investor writing down an investment doesn't necessarily uh, m- mean it's worth less. Um, uh, I, I can tell you Franklin Templeton, the fund that wrote it down, that's uh, it's actually a listed equities fund. It's yes. not a private market fund. Um, they have 5% of their net asset value only in private assets. Yes. Um, these type of funds, I don't know this for certain, but they do tend to get marked to market at the end of the year, which means that the manager gets paid on, on performance fees at a certain interval. Yes. Um, that's less relevant for, for venture capital like fund managers. Management Clearing out the decks so they've got the upside set. Potentially, uh, I don't know whether that's the case there or not, but um, venture capital funds in Australia typically don't get paid performance fees mark-to-market. They only get paid their performance fees when they deliver cash into the pockets of investors. So uh, unless venture capital funds in Australia were planning to sell Canva today, uh, which I don't know of any that are, um, then then the, the valuation question is, is something... Uh, to consider over the perhaps the medium term not the immediate uh, week uh, so in the same way that uh, when if you exclude Canada for a second and look at last year um, most of the valuation policies around will will refer to IPEV which is an organisation in the US which uh, publishes best practice for private equity venture capital um, kind of like the, 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 the uh, generally accepted accounting principles mm-hmm. but of the private market valuation world, um, those, those principles say more or less holds, hold your position at, at uh, either cost or the value of the most recent material legitimate funding round. Um, so if you take uh, companies that had their funding round at the start of last year, um, but then, uh, then the public markets went up. Um, the venture capital community in, in Australia, if not the world, they don't mark their portfolio up. So their, their positions don't get marked up just because public markets are going up. Um, in many, there is an argument to say they should not get marked down uh, just because uh, public markets are going down, provided that that downward trajectory is transitory. Um, now, if we're entering a brand new paradigm, then there is potentially an argument to say, let's have a look at each company and let's see whether the valuation we're holding at that would stack up today. And I think that's what people are going through at the moment.
0: And is a down round a death knell for one of these companies? Or is there a, tra- is there a history around the world of these companies surviving and doing well after a down round? We strongly believe that uh, great
1: technology companies uh, have the ability to grow through market cycles. Um... Again, I go back to Aconex. Um, I'm sure Lee won't mind sharing this me sharing this story. But uh, just before the global financial crisis, uh, Aconex was doing around at the time. It was the I think it was one of the biggest private sort of private equity or venture capital rounds uh, in the country. Because remember, this was this was pre GFC and before venture capital really got going in Australia, and they. Uh, Ma- they found a funder out of St- uh, out of uh, the U.S. called Francisco Partners. And Francisco Partners uh, uh, signed the deal, signed the funding round. It was a 60 million U.S. funding round. And they signed it the day before Lehman collapsed. So the timing could not have been better or potentially worse if things had gone the other way. Um, that deal was honoured. So Aconex had cash in the bank. Uh, and then... They just grew through the following uh, turmoil. So I, I, I can't recall exactly the year that they listed, but there was at least uh, at least four plus years where they just grew and they were uh, above cash flow back, break even. They used the capital to grow through that market cycle. They then uh, did the IPO and then they were able to achieve an exit. And the shareholders that... Backed Aconex from a very very uh, early stage, did very well out of the whole out of the whole journey, um, but that was really about Aconex having that capacity, that product having a capacity to grow through the market cycles. Um, that's the way we look at it. Uh, we love companies that can do that. We're happy to pay full and fair prices for companies that can demonstrate that. Um, we're less happy to to invest in companies that maybe got addicted to cheap capital over the past couple of years and uh, have yet to prove out their unit economics and perhaps even their, their first or second iteration of product market. Fit.
0: Terrific. So before we wind up, some nuts and bolts. How, what, what 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 are the target returns? What are the expectations? And what are the, the guidelines or rules for investors coming into the fund?
1: Um, we don't really have... We don't really talk about uh, target returns. Uh, what I can <coughs> say is... You know, broadly uh, in, in, in venture capital, uh, we are we are one of uh, a breed of venture capital funds. So we're a venture secondaries fund. Um, there are other venture capital funds around and there are very early seed stage venture capitals around. I think that uh, investors should not invest in just one of those sub-segments of the VC bucket. Um, they probably should spread themselves uh, uh, um, amongst the different breeds of venture capital. Um, but if I talk about the broader venture capital um, bucket as a whole, you know, I, I think if if that bucket returns to investors uh, mid above twenty five percent, that's that's a very good fund. That's a great return. Um, in terms of liquidity for our fund, um, it is a it's a ten year fund like most venture capital funds. But th- that ten years is a is is a is a term in the fund documents the The reality is that that we make investments and our investments are just that little bit later, so they're always already above that seventy five million dollar threshold. They already sit a little bit closer to some of those natural exit points in normal markets. Um, each investment has the capacity to to come off to to be uh, to achieve liquidity or achieve an exit a little bit earlier than some of those very early stage companies that that uh, some forms of VC invest in. Um, we've already had um, one exit we uh, i'm happy to share that we've already distributed fourteen percent back to uh, back to our investor base and we're 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 a young fund manager we We only closed our first fund at fifty one million dollars uh, at the end of 2020 and we've just uh, it, uh, closed our second fund now but we've already um, th- th- distributed around about fourteen percent back to investors so what that means is when we get this exit when one of these great companies Uh, gets bought by by a competitor or whoever it might be or maybe uh, in a few years' time looks at an IPO or some kind of public market listing, we will get the exit. The second we get the money, we give that straight back to investors. So it's not like uh, an investor gives us money during the investment period progressively, as we call
0: it, and then they only get it after 10 years. Mm -hmm. We give it back along the way. So yeah, it's not evergreen fund. That's right. Terrific, excellent. Before we wind up, and that's been a really good overview, I'll, I'll leave you with a final say. If there's any points that you think are particularly salient for people looking at this area, particularly looking at your fund or others in that space, happy for you to have your say. Um, I, I think, I think some of the things that that are
1: overlooked. Um, is the concept of of, of impact yeah, with what we do? We're not an impact fund. Let me get that clear. We are we're a venture capital fund. It does secondaries, but when we invest, we make an impact on people's lives. Particularly if we uh, if we help employees and founders take a little bit off the table. As I said, we also do early investors, and and we can uh, buy shares from venture capitals. But what gives uh, uh, gives us um, particular pleasure is when we can help these really smart people building uh great technology companies have this great journey along the way so what there was one uh uh, employee of one of our portfolio companies that uh that i bought some shares from their vested shares and uh this was uh i I was asked to buy this uh, by the company which was already in our portfolio and this employee said to me uh about a year ago look um I have these shares, I, I love the company, you know, uh, the founder has said I'm able, to, I can sell 20% of my shares. And the reason why is because, uh, you know, Ian and I, I, I have a wife and, and three children and I live in North Sydney uh, in a two bedroom apartment and uh, I'm scared I'm gonna start to hate my kids because they're running around ransacking our apartment every day. So we, we really do need to have a house somewhere. and. Um, that's one of the reasons why I'd like to sell some of these shares. And so, so look, we, we, we uh, did that transaction and, and this person was able to go and buy a, a house that was you know, more suited to his family. Um, we've helped founders take a little bit off the table. One, um, uh, one, one founder who's been quoted in, in, in the press uh, talking a little bit about exactly what that meant for him. Um, his, his, uh, his team told me subsequently that it changed him. He, he was stressed and, and anxious uh, before he was able to realise some of the work that he'd he'd uh, put into the company, he was able after we we helped him take a little bit off the table. He was able to sit sit down, really focus on the company, knowing that his family were financially secure, and really, uh, as I said before,
0: swing for those fences. So I think um, it really helps people. Terrific, thank you very much for your time, and Beatty. Thanks for joining us inside the rope. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.